Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now. I'm David Myers, your host. I'm pleased to welcome today Peter Baldwin, professor of history at UCLA and global distinguished professor at New York University. Peter is the author of a long string of books in European and comparative history. Most recently, he has published with Cambridge University Press, Fighting the First Wave, Why the Coronavirus Was Tackled So Differently Across the Globe, which we'll be talking about today. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. So let's jump right in. You wrote this book in the midst of the pandemic. What was it like to deal with such a rapidly moving target in which the grounds of scientific knowledge seemed always to be shifting? Well, um, yes, the frustrations of contemporary history, indeed, in this case, almost sort of instantaneous uh, history are many. Um, Above all, the fact that uh, the story is never over when you're finished with it. Um, I would, of course, have loved to be writing the the, the book still uh, as we speak, and you know there would be another two or three chapters uh, added to the story as it is. So, uh, in a sense, of course, it's it's really just a um, a first draft. But the fact that it could be done at all bespeaks the miracle of the internet and the extraordinary amount of information that not only is out there now, but that sort of began to well into it uh, from the very beginning. And above all, I think it's fair to say that this phenomenon of scientific preprints is a fantastic development that is, you know, if anything can be a silver lining for something like this, um, that has got to be part of it. The way in which uh, scientific information was posted up online, available to everyone, rather than being hoarded away for future publication in prestigious journals, you know, for the purposes of career making later on, it has been an absolute game changer, as one says in the biz. So what actually did you see, though, that said, uh, screamed out to you, I need to write a book about this? Um, Many uh, less courageous souls would be daunted by uh, the rapid pace of change. Um, You obviously saw something that you felt merited, not just the attention of an op-ed piece, but a whole book. And what is it that you were seeing? Well, uh, this is, a, of course, my own personal predilection. I mean, I've written two books on uh, pandemics in, in the past, in the 19th century. And I thought, here mm-hmm. I am sitting through essentially the same thing on an even bigger scale. Uh, should I not try to take a whack at it? Now, granted, everyone who could uh, write and had an internet connection, you know, became an overnight expert. And so does the world need yet another a book or op-ed piece on on the topic? Probably not. But I thought it was worth taking, uh, making an attempt to see whether or not a historian's perspective might bring something, whether there were similarities to what had been done in the past, differences, and that sort of thing. I mean, obviously, I don't have the medical or even public health expertise to weigh in on that end of things. But, you know, in terms of the continuities and in terms of the similarities between what was done this time and before, um, there I thought perhaps there was something to add. So the Luskin Center has the mission of bringing... Uh, historical perspective to bear on key issues of the day. Um, And you have, um, at various points in your career, um, exhibited a keen interest in contemporary history, or as you referred to just a minute ago, instantaneous history. What is it that draws you to that? Um, What do you think 
um, historical perspective can add, or perhaps looking in the obverse, what, what's missing from a public discourse that you think this kind of approach um, adds? Well, uh, take it from a purely selfish point of view from, from the historian's craft and, and guild. The pandemic is, in effect, the largest social experiment that's been rolled out on a global scale well, since the Spanish flu of 1918. I mean, when was the last time something more or less the same hits every one of the 200 some odd nations in the world more or less at the same time with more or less the same problem? It's in a sense an intellectual dream come true from a social scientist's point of view to see how all these various societies dealt with the same problem at the same time in so many different ways. You know, at least you're holding one variable constant and you can look at all the the various things that um that diverged and in a sense you know from from again from a historian's purely sort of narrow-minded selfish point of view writing is so much harder than revising so getting what admittedly is only a first draft and will never be more than a first draft of the story out there is easier than uh, it, it allows others to sort of revise and and correct and i think in the sense that sort of easier as a collective endeavor than sort of getting the first tracks laid down. So I thought, why not take a whack at sort of at least sort of figuring out which direction the path goes and others can pave it over in the future. Right. In that regard, fighting the first wave is itself a version of a preprint. Um, and uh, it will um, elicit the, the, the attention of critics and you or someone else will produce a, a more definitive account, um, perhaps at, at some later point. But you've been repeatedly um, drawn to contagion disease uh, and state responses over the course of the, your career. Why is that? Well, they're an interesting topic in and of themselves, but they, they also pose a fundamentally political problem that I think is fascinating because contagious disease is, the only way of fighting it is is through sort of public goods, through decisions that are taken collectively. Um, individual attempts to deal with the issue involve effectively running away and sitting in a cave somewhere and trying to su survive until it's all over. But for societies as a whole and for governments above all, for states, it means sacrificing some people on the altar of preserving other people. And so those who are contagious, those who have come into contact with contagion, those who are potentially infectious, travelers, people from elsewhere, people who have been in contact with them, um, um, the contagious, these are the people who are potentially dangerous. And if we're lucky, they are in a minority and the majority still remains unaffected. And they have to be rendered innocuous uh, for the majority to, to survive or to pa pass, pass through this. And so, in effect, it sort of poses, contagious disease poses the fundamental political problem for any state whom do you sacrifice for the benefit of the of the greater good? It's a sort of you know it's a kind of ur problem uh, in any uh, community, mm -hmm. and that it seems to me is what makes it so fascinating and what allows it to sort of boil to the surface a lot of the social tensions. You know, who is it who's being victimized? Uh, who are the who are the victims biologically speaking, um, and who are the victims who are socially chosen to bear the brunt of of, of the disease? Um, and you know it varies. It varies a lot. It's not. I mean, in this case, it has clearly been the poor ethnic minorities, women to some extent, insofar as they bore the brunt of sort of housework and and sort of 
maintaining things at home when everybody was stuck there and that sort of thing. But of course, in other diseases in the past, it hasn't necessarily uh, been that. Some diseases, you know, have the, the burden has fallen heavily, for example, on, on the trading on the merchant classes in cases where quarantines were widely used. And of course, and they've, you know, complained uh, accordingly. So it, it's, what's interesting is, is how society chooses who is to bear the burden. Yeah, right. And and we'll talk about this later. But I mean, that intrinsic majoritarianism of sound public health to produce the greatest good for the greatest number of people um, can be exclusionary. Um, and the decisions can be um, and have been over the course of time, as you've suggested, based on considerations other than public health. Um, those, uh, you know, uh, less uh, fortunate or lower on the socioeconomic ladder or uh, or disfavored minorities presumably have not been uh, included um, in some, I assume, previous instances of uh, large public health responses. But maybe we'll get back to that majoritarianism a bit later. Um, you referred to the crisis, the, the COVID crisis, the coronavirus crisis as global in scope. Um, and yet, um, the responses um, uh, that you chart have largely been refracted through the prism of states. Um, and, um, you know, I'm wondering about the history of contagions that you've examined over the course of your career, the 1918 flu, the SARS outbreak, the AIDS, HIV crisis. And, you know, before we get to COVID-19, um, can you tell us about successful state interventions um, uh, in those instances? Ooh, okay, well, that that's hard to measure because, I mean, in the past it was, how did you know if you'd been successful? I mean, some, some countries tried to wall themselves off and, you know, were on the sort of periphery of travel routes and managed to do so um, with some success, you know, in the 1830s. Um, Sweden was a peripheral country that decided simply to close down traffic, incoming traffic. And I can't tell you off the top of my head whether, you know, what the sort of infection rates were compared to uh, other countries in Central Europe. That, but, but I, you know, it's certainly plausible to imagine that it, it could have been worse had they not done that sort of thing. I mean, one of the interesting things um, in this pandemic uh, has been, of course, the extent to which in the beginning, before we got vaccines, the techniques that were available were in effect those that have been available since biblical times. Uh, contagious disease, if you don't have a medical solution to the problem, in effect means that you have to separate people, you have to keep the contagious away from the not yet in infected, and you do that by means of quarantines, shutting down travel, isolation, uh, pe keeping people uh, apart from each other. There aren't really any other uh, techniques available. And those were the ones that we had in the beginning of the of the technique. You know, masking was perhaps sort of the one little wrinkle. I mean, people didn't, well, the, the, even, that, even that in the cholera epidemics of the 1830s, the people who went in, sort of fumigators and people like that who went into the really stricken areas of cities would sort of get dressed up in some kind of waxed linen gowns with masks and that sort of thing. So in, in effect, uh, you know, we've had that as well for, for quite some time. So we're really using very venerable tools of public health disease management um, because there were no others. So in a sense, you know, history bore very heavily on the response for the first nine months at least. Right. I mean, with all of the advances in medical knowledge um, and the extraordinarily rapid development of a vaccine, 
Um, the techniques deployed, it seems, in this crisis were, uh, as you say, uh, very tried and true, extending back to the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, as you quote in your book. Um, and I guess that uh, leads me to ask, what um, received wisdom did past pandemics uh, bequeath to public health experts um, uh, dealing with the current pandemic? What uh, best practices other than quarantining uh, made their way down? Um, you note in your book that uh, we know uh, um, what we know about the coronavirus medically has had surprisingly little influence on government responses. So I guess the question is twofold. You know, what what wisdom did we inherit alongside quarantining? And um, why was that um, th that advice or that sense of medical best, pra best practices not especially influential. Okay, so two two parts to the question, two parts to the answer. Um, the, the kinds of yeah. things that we inherited were, as I say, distancing, quarantining, uh, keeping people out. And the, the interesting thing is actually that many of these um, practices, especially, for example, shutting down travel, were now regarded by the WHO, for example, in the beginning as being sort of you know, old-fashioned, outmoded, we really don't do that anymore. Why should one shut down travel? Because, it, you know, ultimately there's so much travel that you can't really keep it out. And therefore, what, you know, there's no point to it because it'll seep in anyway. There was a kind of, you know, collective bien-pensant wisdom that went against some of these, uh, as were, inherited uh, techniques. Um, but that then actually turned out to be wrong. And, and I mean, the WHO... Uh, and uh, many national governments would have been much better off had they shut down travel from the word go and didn't done so early. I mean, we now know that you know travel restrictions, in fact, work very well if you can do them. Some countries have a much easier time doing them. You know, if you're New Zealand, if you're Australia, uh, not to mention North Korea, you know, you you really can limit travel coming in. If you're the, the Netherlands, it's obviously a rather more uh, difficult proposition. Um, if you're the U.S. and you try to prevent travel between states, you know, good luck with that. So, it, you know, it works uh, in certain cases and not in others. And in that sense, one could almost speak of a kind of revival of 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 old techniques that had been thought to be sort of outmoded and almost quaintly old fashioned instead. So then, the, the, you want to come into that, or no? No, go ahead no, no, to go the ahead. to the. Uh, to the next, to the other part of your question, which is so, so the medical knowledge. So um, that that was, of course, uh, you know, a, 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 an ongoing, moving circus. So in the beginning, for example, uh, we thought you know it was passed along by droplets. Um, aerosol wasn't sort of thought of as being quite so important. So that meant that you should cover your mouth when you sneezed or coughed, but masks weren't really that crucial. Later on, when we realized that it was actually aerosolized transmission that was more important, then suddenly masks became a, a, a possible way of, of cutting a transmission. So then, you know, suddenly masks were, you know, be, began to be recommended. Uh, the WHO, again, had recommended against masks in the beginning, not so much because they didn't think they were effective because they were worried about shortages and not having enough masks for medical personnel because, but that was because they were thinking of these particular medical grade disposable masks of which there weren't enough in the beginning. But it was only sort of later that they then discovered that, uh, you know, homemade cloth masks actually did a pretty good uh, job of it too. And when you accepted that an aerosolized uh, transmission was a big part of it, then th that was worth recommending. Asymptomatic carriers. Again, in the beginning, we had no idea. Um, some diseases, you know, when when they hit, 
People have very clear symptoms. They feel miserable. They tend to stay at home. You don't have to worry about them wandering around. But after a while, it became clear that a large part, you know, sometimes up to half, but certainly 30% of of people with COVID were asymptomatic. They had no idea they were diseased. They wandered around. There was no way of saying, stay home if you feel ill, don't go out, because these people didn't feel ill. And so suddenly, if you have a lot of asymptomatic carriers, then you have to start worrying about uh, techniques like testing them and tracing them. You have to worry about closing schools, because even if kids don't get sick, uh, they may be a means of transmitting asymptomatically to their parents, to their grandparents, to others. So suddenly, a whole new set of public health interventions open up based on what you know medically, uh, but didn't know up to a certain point. And then above all, the whole question of the immune response. You know, up until the vaccines turned out to work, we really didn't know very much about the immune response, whether there was one, how long it was going to last. We were incredibly lucky as a species to discover that there was an immune response. But many nations built their entire response on the assumption that well, on a number of assumptions, either not taking for granted any sort of immune response, which is in effect what countries like New Zealand and Australia did. I mean, they're still sitting in lockdown, not really having vaccinated, having solved the first problem, but not having sort of adopted the exit strategy the vaccines now allow them. And other nations, in contrast, like Sweden, assumed that there would be a kind of natural herd immunity when enough people were infected just by the disease spreading through the population, that it would then sort of shut itself down as people develop this herd immunity. But when they took those decisions, they hadn't a clue. It was completely on a song and a prayer, and they were hoping for the right outcome, and they never got it. You know, there's there doesn't seem to be any any likelihood of attaining natural herd immunity to this disease. That's often the case uh, with many diseases. And the idea that you would bank on that as a strategy is you know, fundamentally misguided. And yet politicians decided to do so, as it were, even in the absence of any reliable scientific uh, knowledge about it. Well, I'm, I'm struck by sort of the shifting winds of, of scientific knowledge, especially around masking, um, because it seems like you're suggesting, you know, we would have been better off to just adopt the old biblical and uh, late 19th and early 20th century tactics of masking, quarantining, and travel restrictions, and forget, you know, whether what the size of the aerosol droplets were. Those were, at the end of the day, the tactics most successful in preventing the spread of the disease. And scientific knowledge sort of complicated the story. Uh, this sort of this, this constant, um, fast-moving um, latest update from the scientific front actually uh, complicated and 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 in some sense retarded the progress in in preventing spread. Sure, but but turn it the other way around. Scientific knowledge was always about trying to push back on these techniques. Of course, you're absolutely right. If we had if we had been able to say to everyone, stay at home, do not go to work, insofar as you have to leave the house, put on a mask, do not travel, do not admit any travelers from elsewhere, and basically just shut down society. That would, of course, have cured. I mean, in theory, you could have shut down the entire globe for, let's say, three weeks. And after those three weeks, the globe would have been back in the same position it was the day before patient zero. And then we would have started all over again. The practicalities of doing that, of course, uh, were daunting, uh, not to say impossible. And every scientific 
intervention here had to do with how do we avoid this maximum solution that you've just described, which of course would be effective, but would also bring the economy and everything else to a, a grinding halt. And in effect, that whole, you know, modus vivendi that we worked out in the industrialized world where, you know, 40% of the population worked to keep 60%, uh, allow 60% to stay at home, that of course, you know, that wouldn't have worked either. I mean, we're talking about two or three weeks of complete shutdown. So people would have gone hungry, uh, you know, emergencies would have gone unanswered and there would have, it would have been dreadful in its own way, but it would have been effective. Kind of breathtaking. I have to say, it's kind of breathtaking, that sort of internationalist utopian fantasy that you're spinning. Like if we had only shut, if we shut down for only two or three weeks, um, you know, we, we might have prevented the extraordinary destruction that this virus uh, wrought on billions of people. Um, and yet, um, you know, the cost benefit analysis would yield, um, you know, might tip in favor of this very patchwork series of responses that we've yeah, seen. Sure. I mean, we can't possibly underestimate the costs of three weeks of complete and utter shutdown. I mean, we're talking starvation and things like that. Not everybody has three weeks of, uh, you know, tuna fish and cans sitting in their garage or much less anything else. So, um, so that would have been a very harsh measure to say the least. Uh, so anyway, so the point is that the scientific knowledge was always used in an attempt to loosen up this maximalist uh, solution. You know, you could go out, but you had to wear a mask. You could go out, but you had a distance. Um, you could work as long as it was behind plexiglass. Uh, you know, all those sorts of ways of sort of allowing more normality than would otherwise have been the case. In the name of reckoning with political, social, and especially economic realities. Well, exactly. So, you know, those countries that were most successful in the first public health phase of the pandemic were those countries that could either just order people to stay at home, like China, or count on the buy-in from their citizens that they agreed to stay at home, uh, which were a number of other nations, New Zealand, Australia, Taiwan, South Korea. You know, these were nations, Japan, I think, to a large extent. These were nations where people were willing to go along with it. But then of, there were nations where political leaders simply could not count on the cooperation of their citizens. And those nations include basically every Western industrialized democracy. You know, the West has not come out of this pandemic looking good. Um, there have been so many reasons why um, our mortality rates are among the highest uh, in the world, even though, you know, supposedly we are better able, richer, more capable, better administrations and all that sort of thing, and should have been able to deal with this much better than we did. So let's drill down on that. You write in your book, neither political system nor science explained why nations differed so dramatically in fending off the pandemic. And you make... Uh, the case throughout the book that um, you can't generalize that democracies did better than autocracies in 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 dealing with it as or 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 the opposite as one might uh, one could mount arguments for for either side doing better but in fact there's no general rule so what ultimately did matter what what is it about those that collection of nations mm. states that you mentioned at the outset yeah there's no general rule some autocracies did badly and many democracies or some democracies did well. So yes, there's no general rule separating out autocracies uh, versus democracies. That That is true. But so if we look at the ones that did do well, the democracies that did well were the ones that could count on 
buy-in from their citizens. You know, the 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 New, the Prime Minister of New Zealand used to talk about her team of five million. I don't think there are many other countries where there were teams of you know however many million people belong to that country. Uh, in most other democracies, you had a querulous, cantankerous group of citizens, very few of whom would actually sort of agree on what should be done, what could be done, what they were willing to do, and and who sort of you know went along for the, you know, sort of pitched in, as it were. So New Zealand was happy they could do it. Australia is it's actually a very interesting case because the Australians obviously have been able to count on a lot of buy-in. And look, I'm no expert on Australia. I know what I read in the papers like anyone else. But I'm impressed by the extraordinary firmness with which the Australian government imposed measures on their people. And, you know, normally we think of Australians as being, you know, a bit like Americans, you know, sort of individualist. As libertarian as, as they come. Fair, individualist. Um, people are used to lots of empty space and doing things their own way and, uh, you know, crocodile Dundee sort of style. I mean, this is, um, so that doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, in Australia, they have, after all, literally prevented Australians who have every right to live, to be in Australia, who wanted to come back, they've prevented them from coming back. And even more, almost inexplicable, they prevented Australians in Australia who wanted to leave from doing so. I mean, people who had, you know, good business reasons to go or family reasons wanted to come, wanted to leave, are simply to this day prevented from exiting the country for reasons I honestly don't understand. Because it seems to me from Australia's point of view, as long as they don't come back, or as long as they only come back, you know, going through all the quarantine procedures and so forth, why do you care that they leave? I mean, that's not a danger. So I don't quite get it. But but I mention it only to point out that the Australians, despite their laissez-faire, rather libertarian uh, reputation, had laws that most other liberal bourgeois democracies, the citizens, I don't think would have tolerated, but they did in Australia, in much the same way as, you know, the, as the Chinese could count on both a great deal of buy-in and a great deal of exert of power by the authorities to make people stay at home and come for testing and show their ID cards and, you know, all the rest of the stuff that was required for testing and tracing. So, it, curiously, it seems like Asian or Asian adjacent democracies did better, better than Western democracies. Well, I, I, I um, in this case, I certainly count New Zealand and Australia as part of Asia because they reacted much the same way. Now, we mustn't forget, of course, there are also islands and islands with a glaring exception of the UK. Um, you know, had a certain advantage from the get-go. If they were willing to sort of shut down incoming travel, then they could actually sort of quarantine themselves off and and preserve themselves. You know, the the, the nations, the Pacific Island nations, very small, of course, and and quite distant. Uh, most of them shut down promptly, and very few of them have had any serious um, uh, epidemiological issues. I mean, they've had econo economic issues, of course, but um, as a result, but they've done very well for much the same reason. So one of the um, cases that interests you most in the book um, is what would seem to be uh, the, the great outlier um, in terms of state responses to the crisis, which is Sweden, um, which uh, developed early on this um, strategy of, of attempting to reach herd immunity. Um, and in fact, you even refer to the Swedish Zondervig, the, the Swedish a special, special path. Um, what went on in Sweden, and how can you explain it to our audience? It, it, it is an immense mystery, and it, it, oddly enough, it continues to this day. Um, April, beginning of April, a book has just come out called 
The Herd, which is being, it's going to be translated into English next year by a journalist who uh, sort of explains that despite the fact that the government authorities denied that they were pursuing herd immunity, that is, in fact, as everybody knows, what they were doing, uh, whatever they may have to say. But having done that, he then ends with the most peculiar conclusion, which is that this year, 2020, uh, was the year of Swedish freedom because the Swedes could swan about, you know, eating out and drinking beer and going shopping and all that sort of thing, while the rest of us uh, were locked up as though this is some, you know, enormous uh, advantage. I mean, it would be, of course, if there weren't any price to pay. But if you look at the results, you know, the Swedish mortality rates have been absolutely horrendous. The Swedes themselves want to be compared with other nations in Central Europe, Belgium, the Netherlands, the UK, that places, you know, in the thick of things that have had mortality and infection rates that are even worse than the Swedes. But they don't want to be compared to their immediate neighbors, Denmark and Norway and Finland, because compared to them, they are a disaster area. You know, they have 10 times the mortality uh, of Norway and Finland, five times the mortality of Denmark. They could have had the equivalent mortalities as their neighbors who shut down if they had done the same thing, but they didn't. And so they, of course, don't want to be uh, compared to them. So the Swedish response was entirely unexpected. I mean, this is, uh, in normal circumstances, how should we put it? They run a tight ship in Sweden. I mean, it's not like, you know, these are laissez-faire buffoons who don't really sort of pay attention. I mean, this is this is not Brazil. This is not Belarus. This is not a country where they don't, you know, clamp down and, and have laws and that sort of thing. This is a country that, normally speaking, is, uh, as I say, a, a tightly run ship. And, um, uh, you know, their approach was entirely, as far as I can see, self-contradictory. Because on the one hand, they argued that, Swedes were so well socialized and self-disciplined that they would know what to do. They wouldn't go out. They wouldn't socialize. They wouldn't sort of, you know, go to bars and hang out and breathe in each other's faces and that sort of thing. They were just on their own without being required to do so, without having lots of rules and police in the streets. They would do on their own what needed to be done. And yet at the same time, they also were firm believers in herd immunity, which meant precisely the opposite, that Swedes had to go out. They had to infect each other. The epidemic had to spread through Sweden because otherwise you wouldn't achieve herd immunity. So they had a sort of completely self-contradictory uh, set of policies where you couldn't reconcile the two parts of, of, the, of their tactics, and yet they did them at, at, at the same time. Now, all of this would be entirely uninteresting if we were just talking about one small country of 10 million people you know, on the distant fringes of the world. But of course, their approach became politicized in the rest of the world. And the libertarian right everywhere else said, ha, this proves that what we are saying is precisely right, and that it is bad to lock down, and that lockdowns are not only a violation of civil liberties, but also, um, you know, hurt the economy, and that we would all be better off if we hadn't locked down and just let people go about their business, and the disease would spread, and we would achieve herd immunity, and the Swedes are sort of the proof that that worked. The Great Barrington Declaration, which was issued shortly before the presidential elections in this country, was sort of, you know, a grouping of global libertarian rightists arguing that herd immunity was the way to go and that Sweden uh, was the beacon. So in other words, it wasn't just sort of one little isolated country deciding to be peculiar. It was something that 
Right. Well, I mean, this 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 raises the question, um, you know, given the close association that you've just uh, drawn and do throughout the book between um, public health response and political identity and culture, um, does this uh, response um, uh, represent uh, the death of that illustrious Scandinavian experiment in social democracy of which Sweden was um, an exemplar? Um it would seem to have the traces of that um, that uh, macho-driven uh, hyper-libertarianism, but as you chronicle, the actions seem to be driven by the chief uh, medical expert, this this fellow Tegnell. Um, uh, it wasn't a deferral of scientific knowledge; it was an alternative version of scientific knowledge, um, you know, with uh, uh, reams of data to uh, support it, presumably. Yes, I think it's too early to call any death knell to any, any sort of grand pan Scandinavian approach to these things, because first of all, all the other Scandinavian countries, you know, took what we would have expected them to do, namely, just shut things down in the name of solidarity and preventing the disease from hitting, and they've kept their mortality rates uh, very low, and none of them have, you know, struck out on their own, gone off piece. In fact, they were all horrified by what the Swedes did, and last summer, you know, when they started sort of opening up, you know, the one nation's tourists they didn't let in were the Swedes. Even the, you know, the Norwegian and Swedish border is normally very porous and people, you know, cross the border. Norwegians go to Sweden to shop because the prices are cheaper and they have summer houses in Sweden. All that was, you know, was ended because the Norwegians didn't want the Swedes going anywhere into their country and they didn't want their own people going in, into Sweden. So, 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 so Sweden is really being an exception all, all by itself. Why is it the case that it did, that, that it did so? I think it's, it, it, I don't think it's a, a indicative of some great sea, ideological sea change, I think what happened here was that a small group of self-selected, almost self-trained, but people who had trained each other, public health people, ended up running the show, and a weak caretaker coalition government simply made no attempt to intervene and to try to guide things. And so they People with a certain bee in their bonnet, ideologically, were allowed to make all the decisions and were never intervened with. If you compare it to neighboring Denmark, the public health people there had actually similar ideas to what the Swedes, uh, what Tegnell was saying, um, for reasons I, I don't know. But the politicians there stepped in and said, no way, there's no way that we're going to sort of leave borders open in, in a pandemic. We are shutting down because better to be safe today than sorry tomorrow, is the, what the, the Danish prime minister said. And so she shut down the country. The Swedish prime minister was notable by his absence. He never, so in any sustained public way, spoke out about the epidemic. He left that entirely to the public health authorities. And we're talking about a group of four or five people, all of whom had trained each other, and who I think just ended up in a little sort of echo chamber of their own. Well, by contrast, the American president was notable by his presence. Um, and maybe we can turn our attention to the United States, um, uh, which has its own structural um, features, and it would seem to me liabilities, which um, we actually spoke about on uh, an earlier version of Then and Now with Dr. Linda Rosenstock from the Fielding School of Public Health, um, when we spoke about sort of the, the absence of a centralized public health system in the United States and a form of medical federalism, which... Um, grants or burdens states and local governments with responsibility for really doing the heavy lifting uh, with respect to public health. How did the U.S. Um, look um, in your 
uh, comparative analysis? Well, the U.S., much like the U.K., has been a disaster area. And one of the reasons has without doubt been the lack of any kind of central steering in public health terms from Washington and the president's undermining of the governor's attempts to coordinate. All of that, you know, is pumped down to the state level, which meant that some states were took much the same approach as many European countries, and some states, you know, just decided to go cowboy on us and not do anything at all. So the lack of any kind of, of uh, coordination across the nation was obviously a huge weakness insofar as whatever one state did, there was nothing they could do to prevent people from other states coming in, or very little they could do. I mean, obviously, some of the northeastern states tried to keep, you know, People, visitors from neighboring states out, but you know, there's only so much one can do in a in, in a in a in a federal state system with no internal borders of, of any sort of of any sort of significance. So, so it was a disaster. Inconsistency, uh, in this case, geographic inconsistency, was a was a serious problem. Now, having said that, I think the the big picture that we have to keep in mind is that the public health response is only one part of the response, and it was the first. It was the first nine months where we clamped down on public health terms. And some countries there did clearly much better than others. My book ends sort of just with the beginning of vaccines. And the conclusion then was, so the UK and the US were sort of disaster areas, let's leave aside Brazil and Belarus and the places that, as it were, were aggressively disaster areas. Places like New Zealand and Australia and South Korea and Taiwan did very well in public health terms. And the European nations, you know, some of them uh, less well and some of them slightly better. The Germans seemed to have done better than most, um, you know, had sort of, sort of managed to keep a lid on it uh, to some extent, um, not quite as badly as the US, but certainly nothing to write home about. So that was sort of the, the situation at the, sort of the end of 2020. Then we got the vaccines. And that was, of course, then everything changed. And here it must be said that, you know, Trump made an absolute and total hash of the public health effort, but he got one thing right, and that was to just throw whatever money it takes at the vaccines to get them done. And they got done. And the same goes, you know, for the UK. They they wagered on vaccines and they won. Now, had the vaccines not worked, of course, we would really have been up the proverbial creek without a without a paddle. But they they worked. And not only did they work in a sort of technical sense, then came the rollout. And in the rollout, miracle of miracles, you know, the UK and the US, you know, we weren't the best nations, Israel beat everybody, you know, Israel paid Pfizer 40% premium to get enough supply, and then they just went ahead and did it, no must, no fuss. But you know, after that, um, the US and the UK, much to everyone's wonderment, actually managed to roll this out faster than anyone else. And, you know, knock on wood, barring vicious mutations, um, of some sort, uh, or some kind of relapse, you know, we may slowly be on the verge of exiting uh, as a result. New York Times columnist David Leonhardt declared that today in the United States and likely in the United Kingdom. But And then look at the flip side of that. The, the countries that did well in, the pub health, in public health terms, New Zealand, Australia, all those, are sitting there without having vaccinated their populations yet. They're still isolated. Taiwan has now had an outbreak uh, because they're unvaccinated. And it's unclear how soon they're going to be able to get out of the, you know, well upholstered and isolated hole that they've dug themselves into. So in other words, the political systems that did well in public health are not the political systems that did well in the vaccines. These seem to be two 
different sets of what should we call them political talents and you know th there's been a lot of talk about how the europeans took you know the precautionary principle figures heavily when europeans talk about their policies precautionary principle you know you don't take any risks that you don't need to take you're careful rather than running risks you you know GM modified foods you don't allow because God knows what might happen until you've tested them up the wazoo and you're absolutely 100% sure. So the precautionary principle makes some sense when you're talking about public health. You know, you don't run risks. You shut down earlier rather than later. You shut down firmly rather than sort of lackadaisically. That seemed to work in a public health term, in a public health sense. But when it comes to developing vaccines, you know, this is a very risky business. Uh, you can throw lots of money at things and get nothing for it. You know, Sanofi, big French investment in vaccines that hasn't yet paid off, although it seems now that they may have a kind of second generation vaccine uh, in the pipeline. GSK, same thing there. You know, Merck, you know, companies lose big on this um, and some win. And, it, you know, when you're ordering vaccines, this is perhaps not the time the way the EU did, you know, to worry about whether you're getting value for money and whether you're paying too much and whether the vaccine companies and the biomedical companies in general are, you know, making bumper profits. Uh, these are sort of irrelevant. You know, what you want to do is the vaccine as soon as possible and as quickly as possible. The um, I ran up these figures just the other day. So $100, million, $100 billion for vaccine development globally is what we spent. The economic costs of shutdown and the pandemic more generally have been about $70 billion a week, again, globally. So in other words, the vaccine costs will have paid for themselves if we end the global pandemic a week and a half early. You know, at this would have been a bargain at three times the price. Um, it's just a no-brainer that, you know, you throw as much money at it as it takes because vaccines or some other medical solution were the only way to get out of this, short of that universal global shutdown that we talked about in the beginning, which isn't going to happen. You know, countries like New Zealand and Australia would otherwise be sitting there from now to kingdom come, isolated and happy, but, you know, by themselves. And the rest of us would be living with ongoing, you know, mortality and infection for years to come. Okay. Well, in the last segment of our conversation, I want to um, uh, really turn to uh, the link between public health and uh, and politics or political theory, and and maybe ask you to play both a clairvoyant and political theorist um, to construct what you think would be the ideal government response to a um, episode of this scale. Um, uh, mindful of all of the things you've mentioned, the the, the dissonance between eff effectiveness of response um, to the outbreak of the pandemic and the effectiveness of response in developing a vaccine. Um, and it, th there's not a direct correlation between uh, those two sets of responses. Um, mindful of um, the current spirit of sort of libertarian individualism in the world um, and the needs to attend to uh, Rousseau's famous general will. Um, what pieces need to be in place um, in terms of government authority, institutions, and the responsibility of the individual citizen for an effective response? Governments need to be decisive, firm, and highly interventionist. 
all democracies, let's just stick with the democracies for the moment because, you know, the autocracies, we know how they can work if they want to. All democracies have on their books emergency laws and especially contagious disease laws that, you know, apply specifically in emergencies. The dirty little secret of democracy is that to save it, you've got to set it aside in emergencies in order to prevail. And that's effectively what we've been facing. So the first thing I would say is that nations or their governments have to be decisive and willing to use the powers that they have. That we've seen in Australia, that we've seen uh, in, in New Zealand, and certainly in, in the other um, Asian um, nations. Conversely, you've got to convince your citizens that they should trust you, you, the authorities. And that is obviously the Achilles heel of modern multicultural liberal bourgeois democracies, that there is a fundamental lack of trust and there is a fundamental lack of an assumption that people will understand implicitly what it is they have to do and sort of pitch in. Now, that's not to say that most people didn't. You know, the dirty little secret in the beginning of the lockdown was that many governments were actually doing less than what their citizens wanted. There were public opinion polls, you know, showed that people wanted governments to do more. And if you looked at, you know, resi and reservation, um, uh, online reservation things, people were canceling reservations or not making them for dining out long before governments had forbidden them to do so. So people were sort of, you know, isolating themselves already before they were required to do so by governments. And I think in the beginning of the pandemic, had governments shown themselves willing to impose measures of isolation and lockdown and explained to the population why it was necessary, why this was a short, sharp, painful measure that would actually make things better in the long run, there would have been more buy-in. As things dragged on, of course, because lockdowns were only sort of partially imposed and therefore didn't really work and were leaky and so forth, then of course people get impatient. And after a while, a certain, you know, frustration uh, and and uh, tiredness uh, grows and therefore, uh, you know, this vicious circle and things stop functioning. At the same time, it is also the case that there's been an awful lot of talk about civil rights in the midst of a pandemic that in an ideal world is a discussion we wouldn't be having right now. I mean, the idea that track and trace apps on our phones are some massive violation of our privacy seems to me to be an absolutely perverse argument to be making in the middle of a pandemic. Tracking and tracing is a very complicated, very intrusive, very privacy debilitating a form of intervention, but absolutely crucial for contagious disease. And in the old-fashioned way of doing it, you know, where you had to call people up or track them down at their homes and make sure they were staying in and finding out whom they'd seen that sort of, it's enormously invasive, it's enormously manpower consumptive, and just basically impossible to do. Now we all have mobile phones, and an app would have made it infinitely easier, would actually have made contact tracing possible. What's the first reaction to contact tracing apps? Oh no, we can't possibly do them because they follow us around and they track our privacy. Every person who hasn't turned off Google Maps ability to trace wherever they go suddenly decided that when the government was able to do that, that then it became a sort of viol gross violation of their civil liberties. And as a result, contact tracing apps were basically rendered impossible to use in Western democracies. Same with masking. The idea that 
wearing a mask is somehow a violation of your civil liberties. I just do not get, you know, we have seat belts, we have bicycle helmets, uh, you know, no shirt, no shoes, no service. That doesn't seem to bother anybody, but, you know, putting on a mask, that is somehow again, you know, a sudden gross violation of liberty. And when these are the sorts of issues that government authorities are dealing with, this is the sort of population that you have unwilling to cooperate with even something as sensible as a contact tracing app or wearing a mask, then you have to ask yourself, how seriously are people taking? Do they really want to be saved? Or what is one supposed to do in these circumstances? And there, I don't have a good, I, I don't have a good answer. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you if you have a good answer to the last sentence in your book, which could be the topic of a whole other hour, um, but will have to uh, be resolved in a matter of a few minutes. Um, you write um, in your last sentence, the solution has to be global or not at all. So you've spent a lot of time talking about the responses of uh, state uh, organizations and, and, and authorities. Um, and I'm wondering if by your final sentence, you mean we need to rethink the bounds of state sovereignty and um, fortify international institutions such as the World Health Organization um, and others. Well, it would be good if we could, but I don't see that we can in any realistic sense. I mean, the reason why states are, are the ones that have to, or that did the heavy lifting here is that states are the ones that have the, the, the power to make people do what they don't want to do. And that is for a contagious disease, unfortunately, uh, one of the only ways of, of combating them. So in that sense, only sovereign nations with control over their citizens are able to be the players. Now, that doesn't mean that international organizations, which you know definitionally don't really have any sovereignty over the people they come into contact with, uh, can't be useful. The WHO, of course, ought to be beefed up, and it ought to sort of correct the mistakes that it it, it ran, that it, that it made uh, during this um, this pandemic, there are other organizations that aren't necessarily international, but that function in effect as international organizations like the CDC, which used to be, although it's paid for by the American taxpayer, you know, functioned as a global organization. It too did very poorly in this pandemic, and it too ought to be beefed up uh, in, in to prepare us uh, for the next uh, one. So it's not that there aren't roles for international organizations, but clearly what we now know what we need is some kind of international sentinel system that picks up when new infections first pop up and then is able to trace them as they spread. And if we had that kind of information that national governments could then act on, aha, there is something in Wuhan that we know already about in late December. And aha, by January, it's already in New York and in Italy or you know wherever the first places were, then we could act on it. You know, Part of the problem was lack of information and the slowness uh, of its spread. So it would certainly be possible to set up some kind of international sentinel network that would at least allow us to be alerted to the next problem that is going to come across our transom inevitably. Okay. Well, on that note, um, I would like to thank Professor Peter Baldwin uh, for uh, joining us for a most illuminating conversation. He's the author of Fighting the First Wave, Why the Coronavirus was tackled so differently across the globe. Um, Peter, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us on Then and Now. Uh, special thanks, as always, to our producer, Maya Ferdman, wishing you all a safe and healthy day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. 
Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.